Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello and welcome to this week's Bat Chat from the Bat Conservation Trust. I'm Steve Rowe and this week we're in the Staffordshire Bee District. When I started doing bat work at the age of 12, one of the first long-term surveys I got involved with was a hibernation survey with Staffordshire Bat Group. Historically, Staffordshire and Derbyshire Bat Groups have had strong ties because we share the Peak District National Park and every winter we still undertake this particular survey together. Now, this year, many bat workers are missing going underground, as there is an unknown risk of passing the coronavirus disease to bat populations. And so to prevent that happening, all surveys undertaken for the National Bat Monitoring Programme have been cancelled this winter. So we hope that this episode will remind existing bat workers that one day we will get back out there. And to any of you listeners who are thinking about joining your local bat group, or have yet to undertake a hibernation survey, we'll recognise how fun surveys are, and we'll encourage you to get involved with your local group and to contribute to important long-term data sets. So last February, before we had any idea of what was about to unfold and that we were headed for a national lockdown, we took the podcast recording kit along on last winter's survey, resulting in what may well have been the first podcast to have been recorded inside a mine edit. Helen Ball is the survey leader, and we join her at the start of the day, making the two and a half kilometre trek from the cars to the nature reserve, where the survey happens in the Manifold Valley. So it's a Saturday in the middle of February. I'm currently walking through a very blowy, windy field with members of both Derbyshire and Staffordshire Bat Group. Helen, what are we doing today? Um, other than getting lost on a very steep hillside, um, we're carrying out uh, an annual check, a monitoring survey for bats that use a series of mine adits to overwinter in and hibernate. So we're doing counts of the numbers of bats we see in the species. And whereabouts in the world are we? We're in the best part of the world. Um, we're in the Staffordshire Peak District in the limestone area, in an area of the Peak District known as the White Peak, and um, it's riddled with caves and mines, and lots of them are used for bats. So how long has the study been going on here? The study's been going on for quite a long time, since the very early 1970s. Um, and as far as I know, it's one of the um, longest studied winter hibernation sites for bats, probably in the country. So who was doing it all the way back then, then? Well, initially, the adits were checked by Derek Yulden. Derek was a local mammologist, a very eminent, internationally known zoologist who studied mammals, and he moved to the... Peak District on the Manchester side and spent most of his weekends studying uh, mammals of the Peak District including mountain hares, 
the wallabies that live down at the roaches, but also bats. And he used to come up to the mine addicts here on a weekend with his dog and check the caves for bats as we're doing today. And who owns the site that we're heading to today? Is it a nature reserve or...? There's a series of mine addicts, 11 in total. Two of the biggest addicts, the longest addicts, are, are on Staffordshire Wildlife Trust's nature reserve known as Caston Wood. And um, it's a very beautiful reserve overlooking the River Manifold. Which we're coming up to now and you can sort of see it dips way away down into the valley and there's no sunshine down at the bottom. No, it were, the top of the hill's about uh, 500 foot above the river. And what sort of bat species are we hoping to find and in what sort of numbers? We're hoping to find uh, five species, so four of the myotis, Dorbentons, Natras, Whiskered and Brants and Brown Long-Eared. They all use the um, caves and mines here. Numbers vary from year to year and between the different mine addicts. We can get anywhere between maybe 20 bats up to 50, 60 um, and sometimes even higher. Cool. How far is it to the first cave? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. A few hundred metres. This one is probably the easiest to get to, um, but they all involve going down quite steep slopes. So the tunnels we're walking are long. I'm struggling to stand up straight. They're less than six feet tall and about a metre and a half yeah. wide. And as you can hear, it's pretty echoey. So Helen, we've scrabbled down a rather steep hillside and we've come through a gated system. Why have some of the systems got gates on? Uh, some of the systems have got gates on on the sites that are visited more by members of the public. So it's to stop people going into the addicts who maybe are not really kitted out or aware of what dangers could lurk inside. Um, they're all padlocked and they're grilled and the grills are set in a way that bats can still fly in and out. It doesn't affect their use of the, uh, the mind. I mean, we just found five or six bats before the grill. Is that usual or expect to find more inside, further inside the system? So in this addict in particular, we often get a concentration of natural bats, particularly in one or two long geared near the entrance. Um, I remember one year we found 11 just in cracks in the um, entrance before the grill. So there's usually a concentration of natras and a few long-eared near the entrance and then as we get further in the bats will be spaced along as you get Dorbentons, Whiskered Brands. How long are the systems on average? What, what the range is? So the addicts all vary. There's some that are maybe only 5, 10... 30 metres long. This one's 90 metres long, but the far end of it's blocked with stacked deads and collapses. Um, some of the longer addicts here are 2, 250, nearly 300 metres long. So the guys in front of us are searching the walls. Is there a particular method to what they're doing here? Yes, so, so we try and have a method in that um, every other surveyor will take a wall up to the top of the ceiling so left-hand wall and then right-hand wall, searching systematically all the little gaps, nooks and crannies for bats 
And then on the way out, we look again because it's quite easy to miss bats, particularly in some of the deeper crevices that are facing inwards towards the mine. So we'll reverse it and look again on the, on the way out. So this bat we've got here, Helen, is just clinging to the wall close to the ceiling. How are we distinguishing what it is? Okay, well, we know it's a myotis bat from the shape of the tragus and the very pale belly. In these systems, we get a lot of whiskered ambrams. Very, very difficult to tell apart, even in the hand. Um, but we look at some, we tend to get a jizz if you see them quite often. The whiskered in the peak district are often a little bit smaller, quite dark. The tragus is a little bit of a different shape. We look at the shape of the nostril. Um, so often it's gone on jizz in the, in the caves. But because we can't handle them, because we can't test the fur for DNA, we always put them down as a possible whiskered or a possible brant. Um, and quite often they're just li literally written down as whiskered brant. Oh, we're doing well. That's ten. Ten up to there already. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, one there. So this one's quite different, this one's a lot paler than the ones we've just seen. It's got a much wider tummy, so what's this, Helen? So this is a Naturas. This is the most distinctive myotis we get in the caves. And when you're learning about um, myotis bats, the first one you would learn is um, Naturas. So it's got a really white, pale belly. They're also known as the red arm bat because they've got quite pinky arms. Very long ears that sort of curl round a little bit at the tips. Pinky ears long tragus, pinky nose, very, very sweet bats. If you can see, the, the feet and the tail membranes have quite long bristles on them too, but very distinctive bat, and that's the first one you would recognise as a, as a naturus. Once you've got that one, it's a case of then trying to get your eye in with a dorby and splitting off whiskered brands. Loads of cave spiders as well. And the other interesting thing is the tissue moths, isn't it, we get in these on the limestone. So these tissue moths that we're looking at here, we've seen quite a few of those and we've seen a few herald moths as well. Are they species which are regularly found underground? Yes, yes. So herald moths are quite a widespread moth and they share similar um, requirements in the winter for as bats. So they tend to roost in cool, stable, not too damp um, underground systems or outhouses, buildings are not heated. The tissue moths are a type of geometric moth and they're quite a notable species on the limestone so they're quite restricted in distribution and whenever we see them in the caves we always send those records in because they're a notable find. It's getting uh, lower, you have to stoop more. <laughs> yes. I'm not as so, tall as you. For listeners at home I'm currently doubled over. I'm not as tall as you, Steve. <laughs> I can just about stand up. Oh, so there's one deep there. I don't know what they've got. Are you looking? That looks like a nasty oh, yeah. 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 yeah, it's got the curved ears, hasn't it? Yeah, pinky arms, white. So, I mean, that one's tucked really deep inside crevices. Do we know, have any idea why some out in the open and some are so tucked deep inside crevices? No, I don't think we do know. I guess um, they're all looking for their individual requirements. Some might have less fat reserves than others, so some want to go deeper into hibernation. 
the ones around the entrance may have only just um, moved into here. So a few years ago, it was filmed for Spring Watch, and I came down at the end of February just to check where the bats were. And during the intervening days, there was snow and ice. It was absolutely freezing, and we came back to film, and the majority of the bats had moved positions within that time. Hmm. So even in very, very cold conditions, they're still moving about within the cave system and potentially between caves and mines. So some will be hung quite out in the open and a little bit twitchy because they're not that deeply in torpor, whereas other ones, like this one's really deeply tucked away, a long way from the entrance, very stable conditions, and looks like it's going to be fast asleep for a, a couple more weeks still, at least. I know we've got a bat because I hear your camera going. <laughs> well, I photographed spiders and moths as well. Uh-huh. So that was a that moth that was down about this height, a bit further along, did you say? It was a Is it was tissue. it the grey one? Yes, yeah, down Tish, Tissue moth. They're quite yeah. a notable species. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. So uh, it's nice to see them. There aren't many moths over winter as adults. It's got really pink ears, hasn't it? Very pink ears. Yeah, pink arms. That one's fast asleep as well. So what's this thing that we've come to? It looks like a dry stone wall inside a mine. It does, yes. It looks nice, but looks can be deceiving. So this is called a stack dead. So the miners, when they used to blast away and chip away the rock, any of the rock that was not needed, so it had no lead ore in, would be stacked up along the sides of the adits or even sometimes up the sides of the shafts, completely unstable, no mortar holding it together. Um, very, very dangerous if you're coming into mines and you don't know what to look for. Um, definitely something you wouldn't touch or climb up. Despite the fact they look great for places for bats to hide. Great places for bats to hide, yeah. But the name gives it away. They were stacked dead. They were, um, they're dangerous and a bit useless as well in terms of the rock. Oh, Dorby. It's usually Dorby deeper in. Usually on the left. Just pull that hill low down. So, Helen, what makes this one a Dorbenton's bat? Genetics. (laughs) (laughs) So, we've got a Dorby bat here. Really good view of it. Um, Lots of people say they look a bit teddy bear like. So, very short, squat ears, little pinky face. Pale tummy, but not as t- uh, pale as a natter's, and very, very big feet. So they use those feet for gapping insects off the surface of the water, which is an adaptation of this species in particular. And this one, too, is very deeply in torpor. So we're well into the afternoon now, and we've just done the fourth edit. And Helen, what have we found so far? Numbers have been good so far. We've, got a to- we've had a total of 41 bats five species we think assuming that we've had both whiskered and brants the majority of bats i think so far have been natterers so what's the history of these mines what what were the guys mining here so these are lead mines um lead adits to be specific the peak district is notable for lead mining so in the sort of 17 1800s it was the most important thing for the whole of the national economy besides farming and wool production. So for a couple of hundred years, lead was vital to the country's economy and particularly important for this region. Um, So they were mining for lead. Lead was really important for things like 
windows, useful water carrying devices, ammunition. And initially, a lot of the lead was mined at the surface, at rakes. But once all the surface uh, deposits had been exploited, they started to dig shafts down. But on hillsides as steep as this, the quick way to get along to the the lead ore was to mine horizontally into the hillside, hence the name Adits. Um, And they used to mine and follow the lead or along the uh, the fissures until they'd exhausted that seam. Initially it was done all through hand tools, but into the 1800s they started to use explosives, and in these adits in particular you can see some of the, um, the boring, where the rock was bored and then gunpowder was put in and the rock was blasted away. So what's the link with Chatsworth House and these mines? So... As I say, mining and, in this area, copper as well was, were really important to the economy. It was, strictly speaking, um, to all part of royalty. It was owned by royalty. But the um, titles for that were farmed out to major landholders hold- and important people in the area. So Duke of Devonshire being one. And in the Peak District, there was a thing called free mining... So anyone who came across a, a decent seam of lead ore was entitled to mine that. They had the title of the mine and it even surpassed landowner rights. But a proportion of the profit from the lead had to be paid in duties to the head honcho of the area. And in this area, it was quite often the Duke of Devonshire. And it helped to pay for a lot of the things like Chatsworth and Hardwick Hall. Nice. How many more we got to do? couple more adits just further up the hillside so we'll wind away up the hillside and then we'll get to the top and team up with the other and team, team up with the other team and find out what they've got yeah see Great how stuff. we've done yeah coal knackers you don't do all these five wabs no BLEs oh we've had a few BLEs actually yeah, yeah. only one singles uh-huh. but per addit yeah. so how's 72 in comparison to previous years Helen so the total count for upper and lower addits is 72 bats which is one of the highest counts we've had of all the years of monitoring. We need to check whether to see whether it's the highest or how close to the top it is, but that's a good count. All five species, as far as we can tell, in terms of telling apart whiskered brands. Probably the most numerous being natures, I would have thought. But again, we need to check the records when we get back. So we should say all of this has been done under a Natural England licence. Why is that important for, for this sort of work? Yes, so this is all done under our sort of level two scientific licences, which allows us to disturb bats for the purposes of collecting scientific information um, and data. Obviously, in order to make sure we don't disturb the bats because they're deep in torpor hibernation, we limit the number of surveyors that go into the caves, into the adits, and we make sure that we don't look at the bats for too long with the torches. Um, and use torches that don't give up a lot of heat. And any bats that look like they're waking or they're starting to twitch will we'll leave and continue on the survey. So where do these results go? So as well as the results going into the local bat group databases, the results also feed into the National Bat Monitoring Programme, 
which is a, a national programme that looks at monitoring bat populations over a number of years to see whether the populations are faring well or badly. So presumably having this longer term data set is more valuable for, for that study? Very much so and particularly winter hibernation check do- data as well because the numbers tend to be more stable and more representative of what bats populations are doing in the area rather than more active roosts in the summer that may be roosting in split numbers or in different places to where they often roost. And last autumn we did, for the first time, have autumn swarming surveys here and we did find evidence of autumn swarming. What impact will that have on the management of the reserve for Staffordshire Wildlife Trust? Well, the first thing is we need to feed the results to the Wildlife Trust. They know them in a preliminary basis but we're due to prepare a report that details all the hibernation monitoring since the early 70s and then coupled with that the results of the swarming surveys. We'd always suspected for a a number of years that the adits would have been used for autumn swarming, for mating in the autumn given the large number of bats that use them for hibernation but also all the droppings that are in the adits suggesting that bats are flying into and out of the adits. Summer surveys of the adits have revealed very little roosting, so obviously the droppings had gone into the adits by bats being active. We came down in August and September and did some harp trapping and mist netting at the entrances of two or three of the larger adits, and we found large numbers of bats swarming around the entrances. So that has not only shown the site is very important as a long-term hibernation roost for a number of species, but it's also significantly increase the conservation importance of it for swarming mainly because swarming sites are visited by very very large numbers of bats and they will be pulled in from quite a significant radius of the surrounding area potentially tens of kilometers so given that the p district has several hundred if not thousand caves and mines mapped by various caving communities and both Staffordshire and Derbyshire bat groups have had evidence of bats in almost all of the ones that we've surveyed so far, which is a very small percentage of those. Presumably that means that the Peak District is really important for both hibernating and autumn swarming bat populations if there's a small number across that many sites. Yes, very much so. I think it's made it of regional importance, um, if not more, because, as you say, the number of caves and adits in really good habitat, because a lot of the habitat were in triple size, next to river systems, woodlands and grasslands that are really diverse, so good insect populations. The habitat overall is really good for bats, and obviously that's coupled with really good hibernation and swarming sites. So there'll be thousands, if not tens of thousands, of bats that are visiting these over the course of the seasons, and that makes these of regional importance. And there's no annex species. No. <laughs> Makes change. She was the only horseshoes and Beckstein and Barbastell that make anything important these days. But yeah, lots of brants and whiskered. My thanks to Helen and the rest of the team for sharing the day with us. And when we got home, we checked how that survey compared with previous years. And the 72 bats found by both teams was actually a joint record with the survey undertaken in 2005. If that's inspired you to get involved in bat conservation and would like to improve your skills to help your local bat group, then you'll be glad to hear that the Big Bat Skills event online is returning on the 12th of February. 
The event brings bat workers together online for a range of workshops to develop their skills and knowledge without having to gather in person. You can book your place on the Bat Conservation Trust website. Check out the show notes to find the link. Thank you to you guys for your continued support for Bat Chat and for streaming this podcast. We're really pleased that you enjoy it so much. In these uncertain times, we all need things to keep us connected. So if you know someone who's never listened to a podcast before, we'd love it if you could show them how to listen and introduce them to Bat Chat. We will have another episode for you in two weeks' time when we're going to be joining some of the team at Chester Zoo to discover how they're helping conserve bats over 6,000 miles away. So join us then. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the Batchat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of Batchat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mill store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the Batchat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to BatChat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow BatChat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.